Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Film House. I'm actually really, really excited this week because we did spend the last three weeks debating that horror film. And some of you have sent us, what was it, a box of dead birds because yeah. they were so upset some with some really of the results. Some people really upset the coin. So a lot of people hate the coin, um, but <laughs> hey, the coin is a great equalizer, so please, please don't begrudge the coin. We're going to do something a little bit different this week. I'm really super, super excited about it because we have some special guests on. Well, of course, we have Elise, who is always a wonderful guest. Um, unless you're hosting. Yes. Terrible, terrible host, wonderful guest, (laughs) but go on. (laughs) Um, but we have two fantastic guests this week. I'm going to introduce them right now. They are from the new podcast, the stuff dreams are made of podcast. It's all about props. It's all about the things that go into making some of the coolest television, the coolest movies, and that you don't necessarily notice them, but these two prize these things they collect these things so first off i want to introduce writer producer collector um you may know him from veep curb your enthusiasm seinfeld snl and for me this is a big one i mean all of those are big one formulative things for me and comedy and entertainment but clerks the animated series you're a huge clerks the, uh, you're the only person i know that <laughs> catches about clerks the animated series. clerks the animated series the show where the second episode is a recap of all the memories because they get locked in a freezer and another one where they can't finish. So they hire a Korean company. And I always say bears driving. How can this be all the time? Um, David Mandel and uh, he and then his co-host as well on the show. Uh, writer, producer, collector. Um, this guy has written some massive blockbuster films like Hercules and Rampage. I mean, these are rock. This is the rock. Dwayne Johnson. Um, he's also the showrunner of the TV series Colony and is currently showrunning House of the Dragon, which is the Game of Thrones prequel, which is crazy. Um, not only that, and this is a huge thing for me, he owns Rick Deckard's shirt from the end of Blade Runner, okay? <laughs> fully, fully missing the part, the missing the little But how did piece. he get it? But how did he, yeah. <laughs> I want my shirt back. Um, I do. I do a really bad Harrison Ford. Ryan Condal. That was a terrible intro, but thank you guys so much for coming on the show. <laughs> thank you. I just got. No, I, thank I, you. I, got, I really appreciate it. I got wound it was, up. It was very exuberant. I, we appreciate yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. High um, energy. I've done. I've done enough of these with with Dave now that when it gets to that the sort of the late stage payoff of what project you're about to bring up mm-hmm. i start doing the the age math and i try i'm trying to like i have a scratch pad where i'm working out okay i had, i put money on euro trip i did i lost oh, my wow. bet with oh, myself because i was i was betting you were going to pay off with euro trip mm-hmm. not clerks matt but damon cameo I, Great my napkin damon math cameo. was wrong 49 63 i was i was going to say that uh clerks uh the clerks cartoon which did, was not particularly uh well received at, in its in its day but obviously has mm-hmm found itself in the afterlife there is a huge crossover uh percentage wise between people that now host their own podcasts and loving <laughs> and loving clerks and i don't know what that means we yeah. don't we didn't we didn't have a big fan base but yeah. those that are fans mm-hmm. often go on to host podcasts so yeah. there you go there's this, yeah there maybe there's a quiet there's a quiet hope in me because we have also written a cartoon show that was <laughs> fingers crossed <laughs> that that almost nobody watched and just give um, it 20 years yeah, just yeah, add so 20 we're, years we're really yeah. hoping it it uh, um, it ages well. Also, I mean, yeah, we're like big fans of both of you. Like, uh, uh, two years ago, we took a road trip across the U.S. and Selena Meyer kept us company with uh, uh, a woman first, first woman mm-hmm. the whole way. Oh, good, 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 good. Just, you know, Fantastic. I, it was pretty, pretty amazing. Like when we found out that you guys were doing this podcast, and then eventually found out that you would be interested in coming on. I got really excited because it is you guys do cover together yeah this like amazing swath of fandom and just kind of the i mean as it pertains to me the industry in general like mm-hmm. and so i'm really excited to have you both on and i love that you guys are both doing a show where you are like almost comparing notes like you both love movies and tv and the magic that goes into them so so much that it's really fun to hear you guys talk about it. i've listened to the first couple episodes and it's just a lot of fun. So I'm just curious where, how the idea for this pod, podcast came about. Like, did you guys just know each other beforehand and you decided to start? And you were, were always you, getting together and talking about it. Were you, was your friendship based off of the prop love, the mutual prop love? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the easiest, I guess, 
to take the second part first, we've no, we knew each other. We met through Prop Collective. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we work in the same industry. It's a small town. We might have met at some point or another. And I think we necessarily probably gravitated towards each other having met because of obviously the the sort of the writing backgrounds and similar east coast backgrounds and different things like that but we honestly we met because of prop collecting we had a mutual friend who introduced us we both collected some of the same stuff whatever and then i think we kind of hit it off off of that and then beyond that and then in terms of the why a podcast uh i mean uh i don't ryan it was kind of your idea but i I don't know. I don't know what the inspiration was or wasn't. So yeah. I, I would. I would like to know. Why. <laughs> My manager had been on me for a long time to do. He wanted me to do a podcast, and like I think he wanted me to do a a one of one of these like fictional podcasts where mm. which you know the the kind like of radio veil. drama thing. Yeah. And I was just like, I, I was like, I, I just, I'm sorry if I have to write one more, you know, one more thing. It's just like that's not that's just not the road in, and I, I like listening to them and all that. But I, but I was like, but I listened to a lot. I listened to a lot of podcasts. I was producing TV in LA, and the rule is, you know, wherever you live in LA, you're going to work at the studio furthest from your house. So I was working at Universal. So I was in the car all the time. So I was listening to podcasts, and I, the ones I really loved were kind of, you know, non-scripted, you know, mm-hmm. non-fiction, that that kind of stuff. And um, it kind of clicked in my mind, like, hey, you know, there's a lot of movie podcasts out there, but nobody's talking about what we do. And I said, I don't really, you know, I wouldn't really go into this thing alone, but if I could do it with a friend that is also into this, then I would, I would kind of be into it. So, I, mm-hmm. you know, the first person I thought of was, was Dave. You know, we always say that the podcast is basically just putting a microphone in front of us and the conversations that we have, you know, all the time anyway. You know, it just it just became very organic after that. I, I, I threw it out at Dave. I expected him to say, please, please get out of my house. But he actually sparked to <laughs> the idea and liked it. And, uh, and um, you know, we just we just started talking about it. And then it, it everything kind of flowed organically from that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's not that you both just sit behind a microphone and gush about the different props you have. Because you, you talk about the subculture in a way that I haven't really heard in any other um, prop collecting show or BTS. Mm-hmm. Like the way that you talk about the auctions and the process and, you know, the ways that you can bid for items like that was something I had no idea. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, every maybe twice a year, there are these big eventized prop auctions, which like blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like it feels like a Christopher guest. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like everybody, everybody's preparing for the year for the, this big event auction. Like how, how do those unfold? Who hosts those or organizes them? I would watch that movie, Dave. I'm just saying. (laughs) It it is funny, though, because people do prepare. I mean, as soon as they hear that one is coming or certainly that there's like a big piece or a key piece or something, you start to get the phone calls or the emails, as the case may be, of as people begin to either like position themselves or trying to kind of like, you know, raise money and whatnot. So all of, I mean, that's, you know, so it's a, it's always a very funny thing where all of a sudden it's like, yeah, there's an auction and maybe there's something in that auction you want to buy and maybe there isn't, but also maybe if there's something that Ryan wants to buy and he's looking to sell something in his collection. So the auctions sell a lot of stuff, but they also cause a huge like churn in the Mm -hmm. collecting world. And so stuff moves around which is kind of fun because yeah. you never know it doesn't just because something isn't for sale in a catalog doesn't mean isn't it isn't coming available like you know from your left or your right kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um the who hosts it it's a couple of these auction houses that have started to specialize um in it. And so uh there's one that, a big one uh called Prop Store that works out of London and LA. There's another big one out of uh LA called Profiles in History, uh Julian's Auction in Beverly Hills. Uh, heritage auction out of Dallas. Then there's a couple of other smaller ones. Um, so yeah, no, it's uh, it's kind of everywhere. And even Christie's and Sotheby's from time to time mm-hmm. will do less of a scheduled one, but more of a they've got something really cool. They're going to auction it off, kind or of, or they got a collection or something yeah. like that. Yeah, you mentioned like they're for for some reason they're doing. I, I guess they must have thought the James Bond movie was coming out now mm-hmm. because they're all doing like these. Jane, like a week of James Bond auctions where they're like auctioning off like 
Ian Fleming like n- like like first editions mm-hmm. and then like like posters yeah. and manuscripts and uh, one of the cars and watches and of course there is no James Bond movie but anyway yeah. they are doing that right now any yeah. any sign could you let me know personally if you hear about uh, Daniel Craig's trunks from when he comes out of the water because <laughs> I would pay probably pretty good money for that are either of you bidding on any of that James Bond stuff. I, the the book stuff I find fascinating, but I feel like if I start that, I'll that's a whole other like just like reason for my wife to divorce me. So <laughs> I, I'm I'm avoiding that. I would. It's funny. We actually have a discussion coming up in. Uh, I guess it's next. I don't know when this is going to air, but our 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 sixth show, which is our final show of our first six. Mm-hmm. Um, is we go through an auction catalog that we had just gotten for an auction that's upcoming, and we kind of get into a James Bond, a big James Bond discussion about what we would want, what we're looking for. Because I, I, I would love to get a James. I have nothing from James Bond. I would love to have a James Bond prop, not the trunks, though. Not <laughs> okay. The trunks. Well, I, yeah. This is a great. That's great to hear great because segue. because Elise um, wanted me to bring up. I have. I'm a huge James Bond fan. Love James Bond. I, I and who is your Bond? I mean, Sean Connery is is my Bond. Yes, uh, <laughs> that's the correct answer. Yes, <laughs> and then and then there, and then you can go wherever you want to subjectively, but objectively, Sean Connery is is Bond. Um, and my parents, they know this, and they've always been very supportive of my love of Bond, and I have all the movies and everything. Um, and then one for birthday. my birthday, they sent me. It was like one of those plaques that had like you would see them on like Hollywood and Highland or whatever and like the stores right above the best dad Oscar. And it was a really nice gift, but it was a plaque and it was just a picture of Sean Connery as Bond in one of the little windows inlaid with like a still of him from the movie and then just like a cert- certificate of authenticity of nothing. Like, yeah. it's not none like, of it's a, a certificate saying this is a photo. Yeah, basically, yeah. basically, like this is a this photo is actually Sean Connery. Yeah. 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 And I yeah. think it said like the movie, it said like Dr. No, but it's one of your prized possessions. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's it, it was a really sweet thing that they got me, but it's also not a poster. It's not so a prop. it's not like you. It's not, it's not a prop. So it's not like you're I'm going to hang it anywhere. Like, it's just. A, like yeah, a picture that I didn't take of Sean Connery. So what I did was I signed it for him. Yeah. <laughs> on the frame. And now I have it at the office and I leave it there. But it's, it's, that's the closest thing I think I have to a James Bond prop of any um, sort. You mentioned, well, you have, that's, that's one more, more than I have. So Perfect. there you go. You're, yeah. there you, you are, yeah. you are winning. If you're, um, yeah. The, uh, if you're the, the famous, speaking of famous James Bond swimwear, the, actually the Ursula Endress, the famous bikini from oh. Dr. No is, is the cover item for, uh, one of the auctions pro- profiles in history. Oh, really? Uh, and their auction actually starts, uh, it's tomorrow, tomorrow. but yeah, yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. November 12th and 13th, but yeah, it's like, it's the one it's the, with the knife and everything. And yeah. you know, that, you know, that iconic image, I will say, sorry, I just have to go. I want to just jump back to Daniel Craig's bathing suit Please for a do. second. I think he is a fantastic James Bond and I know he is a handsome gentleman and all of that mm-hmm. stuff, but the way they, over tailor every single thing he wears so that it's so like he's not a triangle. just for yeah it's it's that weird mm-hmm. like tom ford like triangle like where everything is just like brought in so much mm-hmm. it is it drives me insane and it is not you one should not be looking at james bond's overcoat so heavily in mm-hmm. the middle of a james bond movie but that insane tailoring yeah. drives me bananas it's the most tailored person even in a movie about tailoring they don't tailor that but much I, yeah i feel yeah. like he has to be sleek and aerodynamic well for everything get, you know, he's on but nobody can run in a suit that's, like that that's right? the thing that's the idea. And, and this is I, I feel like if he bent over to pick up his gun his pants would just split <laughs> in, the, in the in the ass so, yeah. so i was i was listening to your guys's discussion about marty mcfly and his outfit and like you know the identification how it's like a lot about silhouettes. What's the silhouette of Indiana Jones? What's the silhouette of Marty McFly? You can pick him out because you know the life jacket, quote unquote stuff. But then I heard you guys talking about how I guess it was all ramshackled together. Like it wasn't like they just pulled a shirt and stuff off the off the rack. They had to like fit it so that way it moved with him because I guess the idea of 
Like, however, yeah, they, that, they wanted to look a certain way at all times, and that involved not how clothes work, right? Yeah, well, they they everybody looks at that and they think he's wearing a jean jacket, and then he's wearing the life preserver, you mm-hmm. know, the, the the down vest over it. But they actually to make it because if you've ever worn one of those vests, it's mm-hmm. always sliding all over you. To make it always look, you know, neat and tidy on him, they actually sewed them together so it was one piece, mm-hmm. so that you know he would just put it on, it would always look great, you know, no matter how he. What it, what yeah. whatever he was running from or sliding across the hood of the DeLorean or whatever, which, which is what I think about with James Bond, because anytime mm. you see Daniel Craig in that suit, he's stuck in it, but then he's also jumping off a crane, and I'm it's like, paint. I don't know, like I I tend to wear tight clothing just because that's who I am. I don't <laughs> Our audience just collectively raised their eyebrows. <laughs> okay, all right, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. like there are points. You guys where, should see the image we're looking at right now. By the way. <laughs> If you if you go to if you go if I go to a wedding or whatever and I'm wearing a suit, I still have a suit. I'm like, oh, probably because I watch too much Bond. I'm like, oh yeah. But then as soon as the electric slide comes on, I have, to, Bond comes I have out. to step off to the side yeah. and I can't participate. You know because yeah. <laughs> I don't have it all sewn together. The, the I actually that's my that's oh go ahead. I was going to the perspective you guys have on a costuming was interesting to me because it's something that that I think I passively think about but never really realized. Mm-hmm was that you talk about wardrobe versus costumes mm-hmm. and that, you know, costumes feel like they're custom. They have some kind of, you know, special feel. You'll, you can explain it better than me. But I thought about that and I was like, I do feel that way too, where I'm, you know, I'm more impressed if I'm looking at like David Bowie's uh, costume from Labyrinth, as opposed to I'm looking at, you know, suit that Jake Gyllenhaal wore in X Thriller. Kind of well, I think I mean right. I think where it gets interesting is when you get into something like Marty McFly, where you do have regular items that are put together in a certain way, mm-hmm. so that what what starts as a you know regular quote unquote off the rack, whether it's off the rack or not, almost transcends regular wardrobe into a costume. Mm-hmm. But I think I think our use of the word costume. I guess comes more from almost the collectability side, which is to say, I don't want to just own someone's suit. Like mm-hmm. I, we talk a little bit about like Godfather is the perfect example, a movie. I, of course, not an original thought. I, I absolutely love, I'd love to have something from it, mm-hmm. but I've seen like four or five different Michael Corleone suits from parts one and two, and they never look like anything. It's just a, you know, it looks like a short guy's suit. I mean, that's, that's all it is. You know, here's a blue one. Here's a tan one. Here's a black one. They don't really feel like anything because you don't necessarily think about how he dresses per se in any one scene or throughout the movie. You know, it just, it doesn't, it, that's a movie where like it, it, it for me, the, the clothing, I guess for lack of a better word, stays closer to wardrobe mm-hmm. than into a costume. And I feel like when something can transcend itself into a costume, then I get more interested in collecting it. And that, that's at mm-hmm. least my perspective. Yeah, I mean, for me, for me, I actually one of the things that I most regret passing on uh, that I had somewhat had a shot at a couple of years ago was the uh, uh, Connery suit from You Only Live Twice, mm. the sort of famous, the Cary Grant suit, that mm-hmm. great, you know, the, the North great. by Northwest yeah. suit, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, that gray suit that was obviously very popular at the time. And, uh, and it was around and it was actually screen matched. So there was a, there was a certain piece of stitching on it because he wears it enough in close up in the film that you can actually say, oh, that's actually that very suit that I'm holding it has the tags in it. And uh, to me, like, yeah, it's just a suit, but it's like that's James Bond's costume. It, but but suit, it, yeah, you know. it does. But that is I mean, they are few and far between, but they do transcend. For some reason, I was looking last night. Uh, I was trying to screen match a couple of props from. Uh, Marathon Man, which mm-hmm. is a movie I love, um, and I was—they had some of the stuff from the dental torture scene. So I was kind of doing a little bit of a deep dive, and I was looking for a passport. That was another thing. But anyway, somewhere in there, as I was looking at different things, not coming up for auction, but I was looking online at pictures of. Um, Sir Lawrence Olivier's suit, like this, uh, also a gray suit that he wears as Dr. Zell all through his New York sort of adventure. And, uh, and uh, it, 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 again, it's a suit, but like when I see that, it, it again, it, it's not just a suit. I'm like, oh my God, like that's his suit. Mm-hmm. And so there are those pieces that do yeah. sort of break the rule, but there are hundreds of suits worn by hundreds of characters in hundreds of movies that I think, you know, 
just end up having more value as whatever the suit brand is than they do as movie wardrobe. I guess that's yeah. that's yeah. sort of the perspective. Yeah. I think the bygone era is inherently more interesting because you know back in the in the in this great studio days back in the you know the the 40s 30s 40s 50s 60s before the kind of collapse of the studio system they used to make all of this wardrobe for the actor. They would tailor it. It would be tagged, you know, mm-hmm. with a wardrobe tag in it, usually Western costumes, which you talk about a lot on the podcast. So there was just a more of a uh, custom made kind of feeling. Whereas now, like, you know, Daniel, Daniel Craig, like, you know, the the, the customers going and, buy, you know, it's buying a suit, suit or having or having a suit made probably mm-hmm. for, you know, for Daniel Craig by the customer. But it just so even though that is custom made, it just feel it feels kind of less, I don't know, less special, less one off than it than it used to back back in the day. Yeah. Like, obviously, obviously, all props are amazing. But again, like ta- going back to costuming and stuff, this is just again, not necessarily <laughs> we have the cartoon failure. But then we also we also did a sketch show last year. Um, which was a ton of fun, but because there were so many different sketches in each episode, we actually three hundred and something. We broke the record for oh, most wow. for costumes, costumes and at Rooster Teeth, which is our company, right? And so, um, but it's weird because you don't you think of it as just wardrobe or whatever, but the show didn't feel real until we got there and saw the racks. And it was yeah. just these racks and racks and it was yeah. divided by all the scenes and all the sketches and stuff. And you're like, you're like, oh, my God, like this is this and this is that. And like, yeah. it's crazy. I thought you were going to talk about how you got married in a suit that you de- deliberately sought to resemble Daniel or uh, uh, Sean Connery's gray suit. The, the suit that you're referring <laughs> to. You yeah. When say. we were when we were getting married. And, yes. You know, she was looking for a dress and I was looking for a suit. I don't just have suits lying around. And when I wanted to get something nice, I would I was going around to places in L.A. And showing it the picture. And I was like this suit. I want I want a three piece Sean Connery Bond suit. That's what I yes. want. And and we, they're surprisingly. There were a lot of places that just they were like, no, we only have this style or this brand or that's not in or whatever. We had to go to like an outlet store in downtown L.A. that they had racks and racks. And then I, sh- Al's, I like if you ever need I, a three piece. I had a picture. Yeah. That's your guy. Al Weiss. Al, Al Weiss. Weiss in downtown downtown <laughs> L.A. If you ever need a great Fantastic. Sean Connery suit. And then I went in there and I was like, I want a gray three piece. And I did the thing because I had said it so many people in retail or whatever that didn't know what I was talking about and rolled my eyes and said, Kind of like Sean Connor, Sean Connor, like James Bond. And he was like, wait right here. And then he went like into the back and he went. And then he was like, we can get. Yeah, we can. And it was yeah. like, that was it. And, and then, then he disappeared into the shadows. He, he disappeared. He may and not have been an actual man. It was a ghost. <laughs> and he sounded Scottish. <laughs> uh, something also that you talked about in your podcast is how props get recycled and reused and repurposed. And uh, like wardrobe being, a, you know, really guilty of that, too. And you tell a story about Stanley Kubrick that I just loved about how him firebombing all his stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, because he knew how the he knew how the rental system worked and he knew that because he came out of that studio system. You know, I mean, he was you know, we think of Kubrick, we think of The Shining, we think mm-hmm. of all that. But he was making movies back in, in the true studio system in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And he knew that. He was. I'm going to custom make these wonderful spacesuits for my movie, and then I'm going to put them back on the racks at this rental house, and then they're gonna, they're just gonna take them and put them in their Planet of the Apes movie or their dumb Star Wars movie or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So he was like, light, you know, light a fire in the dumpster. We're throwing these all in, and mm-hmm. uh, and then nobody can use these again, which makes collecting from 2001 essentially impossible. Uh huh. But also kind of exciting in that when every now and then when a, a good piece does show it up, it always has a great story of either Kubrick letting them have it like as a gift mm-hmm. or on the flip side, basically like, you know, having to sort of like take it out the back door before Stanley realized <laughs> it was missing. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, just because he was going to destroy everything. But, you know, again, with like, you know, something like Star Wars, especially um, uh, like the cantina scene, which they reshot a second time. I don't know if you guys know that. It's sort of a well-known part of Star Wars law. Uh, they didn't like how it kind of, some of it looked. They didn't think there were enough creatures the first time. And that was sort of what one of the things that George thought was a uh, little bit of a failure from shooting over in the UK. So they did sort of a mini shoot to add stuff to the cantina to make it more alien and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So they added definitely, they had a lot of these like new alien masks and then they just needed 
bodies. And mm-hmm. so when you start looking, they just started basically anything that looked spacey. They were just grabbing all these like just mm-hmm. spacesuits and they were pairing them up. So they might use a spacesuit without the helmet, but then put a mask on or mm-hmm. vice versa. You know, so and they were just grabbing stuff that, you know, we've been able to again, not perfectly, but some of them, you know, you track back and go, oh, that was from Planet of the Apes, and that was mm-hmm. from a Jerry Lewis movie, or that was from both, and yeah. it, it just, it was just catch as catch can to fill out the cantina, yeah. which, again, it all makes sense, but it is sometimes you just can't believe that's how it works, yeah. but that's yeah. how it works. Does yeah. that give an item added value if it's appeared in, you know, more of these iconic productions? Well, if it appears um, in Star Wars, it's just essentially <laughs> like, uh, you know, that's that's the gold standard of like, but you're there never going to get it. There was yeah. a crazy piece a couple of years ago. It's funny you, you bring this up. And again, this is the exception because usually it's something that like, I guess it, it usually like it has a life and it's in one good movie and then it either is in one good movie and then a bunch of crap afterwards mm-hmm. or a bunch of crap and then a good movie chooses it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. usually it has a life like that. But a couple of years ago, um, there was a box, like a chest, and the chest was the chest that Obi-Wan Kenobi pulls Darth Vader's lightsaber out of and says, your father wanted you to have this in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Excuse the spoilers, everybody. (laughs) But, but, But also, in the original Superman movie, it's the chest that Lex Luthor has the kryptonite hidden wow. in oh. when that he can't use and uh because the movies i guess had uh one of the same production designer guys mm-hmm. and so he just liked that chest and used it in both so yeah. whoever bought that thing and by the way i bid on it i got outbid i don't know who mm-hmm. bought it i never saw it again but the chest from star wars and superman, and superman. which is mm-hmm. kind of great yeah. i mean yeah yeah, and there's another guy. There's another guy that I know that has. Uh, he has a. He's a bit of a uh, movie gun collector. He has um, uh, a uh, Beretta, Beretta M92, which is you know basically in every movie in the 1980s. But it was it was John McClane's Beretta from Die Hard, and also Martin Riggs' Beretta from Lethal Weapon Two. Wow. So and and you know that from the rental paperwork because when you know we're going to actually do a whole episode numbers, yeah. on guns, but all guns have serial numbers. They're they have to be very you know carefully monitored and and rented to the set. So they they're brought on by an actual armor that the guy's only wow. job to do is present the guns, load the guns with the blanks show the actors how to use them and then immediately retrieve them and lock them up, obviously, so that you know nothing gets off, off the set. So they're very heavily regulated, but that means they come with all this rental paperwork. So you can always match, you know, in modern movies, since yeah. they started mm-hmm. tracking this, you can always match, uh, oh, that gun was in that movie because I have the paperwork for hmm. Die Hard right here. And it says, you know, the, the eight number serial numbers on this. And that, that serial number on that gun was actually Die Hard and Lethal Weapon 2. So it's like two of the you know quintessential wow. yeah. uh, sort of action movies of the 80s and early 90s right so there. Do those end up be- do guns then become some of the most trackable props then because of that? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah, totally, totally, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of, you know, excuse the term, but it's bulletproof because you never have to worry about matching it up on screen because you just know, oh, there's the number. It's Mm -hmm. it's done. That was the that was the one. And often like I I owned a uh, a gun uh, previously from from uh, Die Hard, uh, the first Die Hard. And I actually knew the paperwork so detailed. I knew how long it was on set for. So I knew I had the one that was used through the whole production versus another one that was only rented at the very end. They needed another one for whatever. So it was only in the last month, but I had the one from like day one of shooting to the end. So awesome. there you go. Um, the, uh, the one crazy thing, and we'll probably, again, we're going to do a show about this and talk about it, but basically to own one of these guns, you actually have to, I had to go get a gun license basically, hmm. which is about the scariest thing you can do in the United States of <laughs> yeah. America, because there is a test. Mm-hmm. that is about like a gun safety test to get your gun like license card whatever mm-hmm. and there's a booklet and you go and you go to a gun shop I went to one in LA and I took the test and I took the test with like I don't know seven or eight other people and um, the test like I think I was the only one that passed it which is the scariest thing in the world <laughs> mm-hmm. because it is the stupidest easiest test it makes the driving it looks makes the DMV yeah. test look really hard uh-huh. yeah and like that's so, the SATs yeah so I don't know what's scarier that the test is so stupid <laughs> or that these these people who wanted guns not yeah. for the reason I wanted one yeah. were failing it oh, wow. so yeah so yeah, yeah. this, this just, is uh, this is an actual question <laughs> from the handgun safety test in LA how many beers should you drink before handling a gun oh, no. 
12 beers, six beers, four beers, zero beers. And and I'm well, I'm serious. There's I mean, 30 questions and those are the kind of questions. Around yeah. six, so you're supposed that's to help They you. always say you're supposed yeah. to be more relaxed when you're holding a gun. Well, yeah, then that's so. a guy that's guys doing, well, I'm always more relaxed with one beer. <laughs> we but live like, in LA, I, but, I took uh, I took I took mine and I got 100 and the guy was like, "You got 100." I was like, "Does that never happen?" He's like, "Never." Oh, and I was no. like, "Get me out of this place." we live in LA, but I'm Canadian. I'm from Canada originally, and so when I moved to the United States, I had to apply for an American license, so I had to uh, do a written test again. And uh, in Ontario, where I'm from, from, if you fail your written test, there's a period of time that has to go before you can do another one. But I'm watching as I'm doing my written test, and people are failing, and they're just handing them <laughs> new ones immediately, and I'm just... You know, <laughs> Listen, the system got to keep moving. All right. We got to keep uh, things yeah. going. <laughs> yeah. Well, and all those people have guns, so we better give them what <laughs> yeah, they want. That's true. That's true. Um, Ryan, I, ha- I have to ask, is the Stormtrooper helmet behind you the fabled uh, repurchase Stormtrooper yes. helmet? Yes, there it is in all its glory. Wow. Look at it. Behold. Yes. Yeah. So it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a, a helmet that I, I acquired very recently. Um, this is my. Uh, home away from home museum that I'm slowly setting up. So I have a couple, I have a couple more pieces that are going to go in there. Uh, but I, uh, uh, about 10 years ago had previously owned a helmet from return of the Jedi that I, uh, sadly sold because I was, I had found a Conan sword out, out in the wild and I needed to have it and have it now and immediately. And I was sort of in the, you know, Sophie's choice of what do I do? Cause I couldn't keep both and I needed to raise money. So I just quickly sold it and figured, Oh, you know, these are everywhere. I'll go get another one. And then, you know, a decade later, it was I was still like, you know, uh, lamenting my choice to get rid of it. And it felt like the prop gods were mocking me. So this year was a great victory. I was able to a different helmet, but bring Mm -hmm. a new one into my collection that was actually from the first film. So uh, I I just I I deeply adore it. And uh, and there it is. And all it's all it's uh, chipped glory. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, though, that's another example, though, of sort of the prop churn, which is somebody acquires something, but somebody gets rid of something. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, again, he got a, a at the time a better piece, but somebody got a, a Return of the Jedi helmet. So, mm-hmm. what you know, again, whenever somebody's buying something, there's usually there's this sort of a prop wake to it all that you kind <laughs> of can kind of pick up some things. surf. Yeah. yeah. The the yeah. idea the idea of being like I need this other prop so I have to raise capital by selling <laughs> is like such it's such a fun thought process. Like it it I mean Pokemon cards are a thing now, but like it's it's such a fun idea that like all right, I have to pass this on so that way I can move on to the next thing cuz obviously I'm at a certain point I imagine space like just the ability to store maybe a limitation yeah, in some way. Yeah, that's units a, or, yeah. That's that's a thing and then you know, you you go through different phases in your collection, and and you know, I I, got, I have too much of this, and maybe I can thin this out. But really, I mean, I you know, it become it becomes a bit of it's hard because mm-hmm. these things take so long to. I'm I mean, I'm I'm a very you know picky collector, so I'll only usually buy one or two things a year. Um, so I I do keep a pretty you know small collection. Um, but you know, certain things come along that are great, and then you you just this thing that I took three years to track down or whatever, and now it has to go. It's a really, it's sometimes a really hard decision to make. And, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it's all part of the, the math of being a collector, you know, that people say we're, we're only caretakers of this stuff. You know, it's going to outlive us all. So, you know, you have it with you for some time and then it's at some, at some point it's going to pass on to, to other hands. Uh, I want to talk to both of you about some of the prize possessions in your collections. But before that, uh, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. We've all been there, stressed, full of anxiety about the hustle bustle of modern life. Some of us even experience chronic pain, have trouble sleeping. I know I do. This is a long-term problem for me, which is why I was so elated to discover Feels, which is a premium CBD delivered directly to your door. If you're not familiar with Feels, it helps to naturally reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. So for me, you know, I just place a few drops of feels under my tongue and then I can feel the difference within minutes when I'm falling asleep. It helps me fall asleep more quickly, uh, stay asleep. The important thing is to remember that CBD is different for everyone. So you have to experiment and find the right dose for you, which could take, you know, a week or two, but you'll get there. And if you need help, you can use the feels free CBD hotline to help guide your experience. You can join the Feels community to get Feels delivered to your door every month. You don't have to go out and get it, and you'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel at any time. 
Feels has me feeling my best every day, and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash filmhouse, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash filmhouse to become a member and get 50% off automatically taken from your first order with free shipping. That's feels.com slash filmhouse. This episode of Filmhouse is brought to you by Raycon. Raycon earbuds have great sound, a comfortable fit, noise isolation, and extremely long battery life. Listen, it's really important right now to have wireless uh, earbuds for a lot of reasons. Um, One, if you're working from home, okay, you want to make sure you have good sound. You want to make sure you're comfortable for long days in front of a desk. But also for working out, exercise is really important, or maybe you just want to go outside and go for a walk. I'm really enjoying using wireless earbuds during this time because you feel like you're chained to your desk with uh, regular headphones, but with the wireless earbuds, you can basically get up, walk around. You can make yourself a snack while you're in a meeting. Shh, I do that all the time. Um, but don't just take my word for it. The company was co-founded by Ray J, but tons of celebrities are into it. Basically, everyone from Snoop Dogg to Melissa Etheridge love these earbuds. Um, They are stylish and discreet. No wires or stems or anything like that. You know, there's other earbuds that you might see. I don't like how they look in the ears. I want something that kind of just disappears and just looks cool and sleek. They come in a range of colors and patterns. Plus, there's a 45-day free return policy, which is just awesome. Um, Even better than that, Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of other premium wireless earbuds on the market, despite sounding just as amazing as the brands you know. Uh, Raycons make an awesome holiday gift. Um, it's something they can use any every single day. I, I don't know anyone that couldn't benefit from a nice pair of earbuds. They give you six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design for a comfortable noise-isolating fit. It's really awesome gift. I think it's a perfect thing to throw in a stocking stuffer or whatever this year. It, like You're going to get so much use out of a good pair of earbuds this year and into the future. Um, And also, speaking of this year, it's getting to be that part of the season. The holidays are coming up, and now is the time to get the best prices of the year on Raycons, but you gotta hurry. This offer is available for a limited time only. Click the link in the description box or go to buyraycon.com slash filmhouse to get 20% off your Raycon purchase. So, Make sure to check out the Raycon earbuds. You'll be glad that you did. And we're back um, with uh, David Mandel and Ryan Condal. Uh, and so, yeah, I, this all of this, is, I've been thinking about it. I feel like at some point there should be a Pixar short about, um, about like, a pro- you were talking about a prop that like is in a bunch of things and most of it's oh, garbage. The, but the, the lifespan of the prop. Yeah, yeah. Like and then Wall-E finally at the end of Wall-E. it, it yeah. finally becomes like, oh, I am that ice cream machine that the guy runs by with in Star Wars. You know, like, <laughs> I feel like that should be a Pixar short because I've never thought about the life of something like that before. Um, we've talked a lot about Star Wars. We mentioned Blade Runner. Um, what? Is there something? Yeah, do you have like a favorite fandom to collect? From, yeah, is there something is it Star Wars that like has got you most excited, or is there something that where you began and now you're like, okay, well, when I started, I was really into Star Wars, but now what I want is this. Are there things like that for you guys now? When I started, I was really into Star Wars, and now I'm really into Star Wars. Um, <laughs> no, really, just, really, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, for me, Star Wars was the, the 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 gateway. I mean, it really was the thing that when I found my first prop, which also was a stormtrooper helmet, like the idea that you could even have something from a movie. Even though I was at the time, I was a working writer. I had been on sets. There were props and things. I just didn't, you know, you don't. You don't put it together till it someone puts it together for you. And so when I got that first piece, uh, I was I was very hooked. But uh, I, I still do really like Star Wars. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. At the end of the day, that is the, I guess, the core of my collection. Although I have definitely expanded it into the you know the movies I love, which in particular are the kind of like late 70s early 80s sort of big franchise movies Mm -hmm. um but i don't know but it hasn't changed a lot for me i think i've 
I don't know. I've, you know, sometimes I think I like I've refined it. You know, like at first anything Star Wars, you know, and that got drifted me into the prequels and things of that nature. And at some point or another, that was stuff I sold off where it was just like, I don't want anything from these prequels. They're not good. I can I can say that now comfortably and I'm just going to get rid of that and I'm going to concentrate on the original trilogy. So things like that. Um, but I definitely have gone in all sorts of different places as I've found like, you know, production art and things like storyboards and that kind of stuff. And so... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still very all over the place with what I love, but Star Wars at the end of the day is what I kind of come back to. Mm-hmm. Are you both watching The Mandalorian? How do you, yes. Oh. How do you feel about virtual sets and how <laughs> how it's all done in a computer? So it's well, crazy. I couldn't believe. I mean, I couldn't believe it when they were showing it to me. And I mean, I you know we we've been looking at it for for you know for our show. Mm-hmm. Just you know, I don't know whether I'll end up using it, but it's just. It, uh, to me, it was such an alien. I've been, you know, making, you know, television, nothing at this scale. But I, I just when I was when I saw it and I saw how well it worked, I just I couldn't believe it. So mm-hmm. it's something, you know, they're being set up everywhere. I know the guy that's setting up the one at Universal in uh, in L.A. to to run for all their their show. I mean, this is becoming a, mm-hmm. you know, this is now just a part another way, you know, another piece of movie magic to make, you know, to make movies. And it's mm-hmm. really it's it's wild. Yeah. Is there the same question to you? Is there like what got you started and then where is there a new place you're at or a new phase you're in in terms of fandom? Yeah, I mean, for me, I also started with, you know, with Star Wars. I mean, just as a fan with Star Wars, it actually took me a while before I I got my first Star Wars piece. I mean, they're the most collectible. So the hardest to find, most expensive. It's just always the way it works. Um, and, uh, but I, uh, you know, I, I started there. I, I also love all the stuff from the seventies and eighties. I mean, really collecting is, is it, collecting memories. It's nostalgia to, you know, not to be too sentimental about it, but you know, most people that you find that are collectors are collecting on stuff, whatever age they are from when they were kids, mm-hmm. you know, we, uh, we're, uh, we, we did, we just did an episode, um, about the, uh, the Ruby slippers and, uh, this, it's this whole fascinating, uh, story of, the guy that that found them and acquired all of them, but he was, you know, he was doing this in the '60s and '70s, and he he was nostalgic for the movie he saw as a kid, yeah, in in the '40s, probably, in, you know, in, in in re-release when he was, you know, when he was in a, and he was actually working as a customer in Hollywood, so he had all inside access to MGM and all these places and found all this crazy stuff. It's a, it's a wild story, but it's re, you know, that's that's the collecting is is nostalgia. It's, it's mm-hmm. going back to your childhood and finding those things that you had that special connection with that just, you know, kind of fused your brain in the way and made you the person that you are now. So Star Wars, Indiana Jones, uh, Alien Aliens, Blade Runner, Conan, obviously, uh, Batman, you know, Michael mm-hmm. Keaton, Batman, uh, 89 Batman, nothing against other Batmans, but that, <laughs> that is, that is my Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that, that sort of stuff. And, you know, I dip in and out of other things. I'm very interested in, um, you know, Connery Bond and, uh, you know, other stuff on the outside. But that's sen- essentially the period that I collected. And that's really the right now is the most popular period. All the stuff that goes for crazy, crazy numbers mm-hmm. tends to come out of that mid 70s to late 80s. Mm-hmm. That sort of 15 year golden age. I, 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 I don't want to do this to hurt either of you, but I want to tell you <laughs> I want to tell you a, a horror story that I think it may be for you guys, because you're talking about collecting storyboards and stuff like that, how it's not just, sometimes it's a it's about the process of making the film that is, is valuable to you guys as well, not just the props specifically. Lisa and I have a friend who is also, he's he's a film buff, he, he, he works in the industry. Mm-hmm. Makes props. And- he makes props himself. Mm-hmm. He, he, he just made like a stop motion film. He's Fanatic like, of the era you're he, describing. He loves all of this stuff. And found himself walking around Silver Lake. Silver Lake, yeah. And just happened to pass a dumpster. And next to the dumpster was the production Bible for Super Mario Brothers. Super movie. Mario Brothers. Ooh. And this yeah. was this was like within the last two or three years or uh, something. Maybe a little bit older, but now But it's not like it was like a week after the movie. Like no, this yeah. is recent. And so but <laughs> he he found it and it's the whole book. Like it has uh Story like concept and, art, yeah. storyboards, all kinds of stuff for the and Super actually, Brothers. He gave it to someone, I think, and they ended up scanning and using a lot of it in the Super Mario Brothers Blu-ray release, I believe. Hmm. It's in the special features, I think. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's just somebody it's it's weird because and I don't know if either of you feel this way because you've made 
just monumental projects yourselves Mm -hmm. that so many people revere. But to you, is it like, ah, this is just a, this is just my, my script. This is, you know what, but to other people, is that, is that a weird thing being a fan yourself to then have people react that way to you? Mm. I mean, I always am surprised. I, I, I get, I'll say this. I have no problem if someone likes something I worked on. I get, I get, I guess it sounds so stupid and I sound very egotistical. Sometimes people want me to sign like the DVD case and I'm sort of like, I think that's just going to lower the value. Like, <laughs> I say. like, yeah, like I get like, go get Julia's signature mm-hmm. or whatever, but you don't, you don't want mine. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But it's funny, like when something wraps, like I take everything I can get my hands on and I just, just take it all. And then years later, I definitely go through and I go, I'm not sure I need 18 copies of the crew list. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Or like, I'm not sure I need copies of every one of these drafts. I think I can be okay with a nice printout of the final draft and whatever. So I definitely realized later I didn't necessarily need to take every single piece of everything I could. Mm-hmm. But I do, but I do, I'm glad I took some of it, I guess. I don't know, that's a, that's a perfect are, answer. Are you, are you more compassionate to those who work on your set or like visit your sets and are like, Hey, is there? Can I just take you know Tony Hale's pen or, or, or like you his, know, this his vial bag of the or rock like, sweat? Or, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, are you? Do you, are you, when someone comes to you, are you less of a Kubrick and more of a like? I love this too. So yes, please. You've already you've pre-signed everything. Yeah. <laughs> one of the one of the, I'll say that one of the great things about Veep was because we did so many like elections and campaigns. We have a lot of like. Yeah signs and Mm -hmm. buttons and hats and so it's very easy to just kind of go here's a sign Mm -hmm. here's a button here's a hat Mm -hmm. in a way that you don't necessarily feel like you're going here's a lightsaber wait wait, where are all where did all the lightsabers go you know (laughs) what i mean it's a slightly different i didn't see that episode of veep but i I need to go back and do a rewatch just just a congressional list of all jonah's nicknames (laughs) Um, Ryan, for you, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, obviously you don't need to have that, that fanatical love and appreciation for something like this, but you are currently working on what is probably going to be a cultural touchstone for like, you know, it's going to be a big thing and it's a world building kind and a of, ferocious fandom, a ferocious if, fandom, if I might say. So just in terms of the creative process, I'm touched uh, to hear you guys talk about our podcast that way. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say a ferocious, angry fandom. Yes, yes, very, yes. Also very true. Sensitive, very sensitive. Yeah. Um, But still, like, the process of, like, building that world, do you feel like maybe sometimes you have a keener eye for those things that matter? I mean, but, like, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's funny. We were just we we were just yesterday. We're on a tour through through the costumes department, and uh, it was the first it, very early in in you know kind of conceptual phase materials and you know silhouettes and things like that that you're looking at. But I was like, I was just walking through there yesterday, like a collector, just going, "Oh my my goodness, everything is going to be totally custom made," and I was like losing my mind. And um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know certainly uh, you know certainly for me. I, th- I definitely think about all that stuff and, and, you know, really, really care about it. Um, and I, you know, maybe it's partially because I'm a collector, but I, I think it's also just because I pay a lot of attention to it, the design, the aesthetic of it, obviously as a collector, you're always looking at that stuff. So I don't, you know, I, I'm not necessarily looking at it with an extra eye towards, you know, one day owning it or having a garage full of it, which I will. Um, <laughs> but more, more just because I've paid a lot of attention to this stuff. And I actually was surprised in, when I got into the actual making stuff part of the film business, instead of just writing scripts that don't get made, that how some people pay a lot of attention to all these little tiny details and other people don't. And I really think that that is the difference between, there's a there's a subliminal thing that happens when you watch a movie where all those little details were were, were paid attention to and ticked off because everything kind of feels like it's it all works together. George Lucas very famously did that with with Star Wars. I think Kubrick and all of his films, the, you know, uh, Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, the way all that stuff just stitches together when it's paid attention to, whether you realize it or not, there's a subliminal thing going on in your mind where it's like, oh, this is a world and I'm now 
walking around in it versus mm-hmm. oh this is a thing that was slapped together so it's you know it's certainly it's it's always in the back of my mind and you know will will continue to be through production it's so interesting how it's like detail that is invisible in a lot of ways um because like you mentioned lord of the rings and this conversation makes me think sometimes of sky mall magazine and how you would ultimately get to that point in the middle where it's like you can buy a replica of the one ring and you can buy stinger and you can buy yeah. like all these different things that but Sting, sorry, sorry, Sting. I apologize. Um, and and so uh, so like to have that in a magazine seems a little cheesy. Like it seems a little like Harry Potter wandish. But then when you think about the actual thought and process that goes into making that, the only reason that it's in this catalog is because there's so much identity built into that world. Yeah, yes. the fact that they can make replicas is because they are both identifiable and individual. Mm-hmm. I mean, however you want, however you want to think about it, that like you know they went to that much trouble. And by the way, maybe Peter Jackson did it all because he wants to collect and keep it. Which, by the way, he does. He does. So <laughs> maybe it, maybe it is a little bit of that part of it, but. It, it is definitely, it is that difference of, you know, when you see a movie that has just swords in it or a movie when, like, someone has thought about, like, that that race of people, they're stone workers, and those people, they have steel, and those people didn't have steel, they had bronze, and, you know, just, and again, it's just, you know, it's it's like someone took five minutes to sit down and think through the histories of these cultures, and they weren't just making the movie like as quick as they humanly could. And I, and I think it, it comes through in every aspect and hopefully it comes through not just in the script, but in that production side. And I do think those make the movies that are then that much more collectible, whether they're swords or not, however you want to get into it, by the way, uh, just to pick a, a movie that has no swords in it. Um, a movie, uh, from relatively recently, like when I watch like a Tarantino movie specifically, like, uh, let's talk about, once upon a time in Hollywood, for example, I would love something from that movie, whether it's a costume, whether it's a prop or whatever, because all of that thought we were just describing goes into everything Tarantino's doing. You read about it, you hear about it, where he's, you know, created full biographies of how these characters got to, you know the made up ones obviously there are some real characters too but how they got to hollywood their whose film career they're having the kinds of movies they were in and all of that kind of stuff who they dress like if they're if they're a made up character and so you get all these little details and so again you know even some of the the costume stuff which again looks like very normal again wardrobe it's all very specific probably all a lot of it very custom made or custom modified and does kind of become costumes and all of that kind of stuff and so again a movie with no swords no armor no flying dragons Mm -hmm. but you know in its own way as particular and special for all those reasons Mm -hmm. and i guess it's just about again it loops back around to it's just a really a celebration about uh movies and tv we love i mean that's really what it gets down to Mm -hmm. right I have to ask, do you guys have any Jim Henson Muppets? I was stuff? just gonna ask. <laughs> I, I'm a massive Jim Henson fan, and so I had it I had it written on my list of like I need to know. <laughs> I've seen a I couple have, of Muppets. Yeah. Go ahead, Dave. Oh, I have one thing. Um it's a, a relatively recent acquisition for me, and it's not where I thought I was going with it. I mean, I would love to have like, you know, something truly like, oh my god, you know, that's that's you know, like a puppet or um, I should say a Muppet or something. Um they, I've you know I've heard tale of old Henson employees having one or two things of that nature, but they are very few and far between, and they they constantly I guess are refurbishing them, mm-hmm. so they'll take one and make yep. it better and whatever. So it's nothing I've ever had the opportunity for. But in my collection, I did pick up recently. Um, there's a sketch in the old Muppet Show, uh, which is they're in Muppet Labs, and it's a something called a gorilla detector and it's this uh it's sort of the styrofoam head of a gorilla with two like light bulb eyes and the idea is if a gorilla attacks this thing will go off <laughs> and and as bunsen honeydew is explaining the gorilla detector behind him there is a guy in a gorilla suit who sneak kind of comes onto the set mm-hmm. and just starts smashing everything but the gorilla detector is not going <laughs> off and it is not until I think the gorilla grabs it and sort of starts smashing it that the lights go on. 
And this thing managed to survive. Wow. And it, even though it's a, a piece of a, like shaped styrofoam, it's very it's very Muppet looking. Mm-hmm. And so it's the uh, it is the Muppet gorilla detector from Muppet Labs, designed by Do- Dr. Bunsen Honeydew. And I'm quite wow. pleased with it. Yeah, that's, wow. that's excellent. I think a lot of that stuff also gets donated to be in exhibits. And yeah. Well, like, they they also they kept it and had it for their yeah. own like archives. I think yeah. you know, Henson was like Lucas that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. It's I, very rare. Yeah, they really controlled it. You know, yeah, it has, I, not a lot has gotten out. I got to go to the creature shop in Burbank, the smaller one, which is just like just mind blowing. Um, some of the stuff they they still have there, and then I don't know if both of you got a chance to see the Jim Henson exhibit when it was touring, but. That was magic. I, I, did. no, I, I, did, yeah. I did not get to see that big exhibit. I really wanted to, and we didn't. But a few years ago, before that exhibit happened, they did a thing actually here in L.A., out in Santa Monica, at the Santa Monica like Civic Center, which I didn't even know Santa Monica had a Civic Center. Mm-hmm. It was called Muppet Fest. It was like a, a weekend-long thing. I mean, I'm talking like 10 years ago, oh, maybe okay. more. I was like, how and did it, I yeah. not know about this? No, no, I, yeah, I, sorry, I sorry. I have been here. And it was basically, they had all sorts of like, you know, like cool, like chit chats with different performers and stuff like that. They did an evening thing in a theater that you could pay money and go to that was like a greatest hits thing. But they did an impromptu, basically, uh, archive exhibit that they set up for the two days at the Civic Center. And I'm guessing it was a lot of the same stuff that was in the traveling exhibit. And it was it was incredible, mm-hmm. um, especially when you get to see the Henson, the hand-drawn stuff, oh, yeah. all of his like his notebook stuff is incredible. When you get to see all the early Muppet, early like Sesame Street, stuff. his commercials and, and stuff. Yes, Sam, yes, 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 Sam's, yeah. What is it? Sam's something. Oh, my gosh. I know his that early, his early, uh, and, his, his pre- uh, yeah, all those local ads he was yeah. doing were just incredible. I, yeah. It was Sam and Friends. Was Sam the, and Friends. I, I love, I love those exhibits. I love that's that that's like a regular thing now. We went to the Guillermo del Toro at home with monsters. Yep. Yeah, a few yeah years incredible. Ago. Just, did that, did that too. So yeah. great. The Tim Burton one we missed, unfortunately, but like man, that was also great. Yeah, those yeah. those are so exciting, and I I love how popular they are. Like I mean, it's prevalent in Los Angeles too. But I mean, it's in Los Angeles. But like, even in LA, you're like, oh well, I can't get a ticket for today. I'm gonna have to go next week when there's availability. I saw Tim Burton in New York, and it was it was you know it was time tickets and sold Mm -hmm. out, and there was a huge crowd in there. And yeah, I mean, people people love it. They love it. It's and I think it just speaks to just like the general excitement for this stuff, and and again, how much it emphasizes people's love of movies. You can sit in a theater and you can quietly watch something and not necessarily know why you're loving it. But then when you take those pieces out and you put it in a room, you're like, this is why I love it. And I think that's what makes your podcast like really, really special and really, really other than the fact that you guys are incredibly charismatic and well-informed on it. I think there is like a magic there that even if you didn't believe that this is something you're into, you guys discussing it in such detail with such enthusiasm is really, really compelling. Oh, yeah. Um, the way that you talk about the, the print catalogs that, that come with the auctions, <laughs> it made me think of, you know, growing up late 80s, early 90s and getting a Toys R Us catalog. Mm-hmm. And yes. Circle. And I thought, I thought, man, that's this is like the adult version mm-hmm. of that. The Sears wish book. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, are we, we're almost out of time. I just want to real quick. Is there, we kind of touched on it earlier, but is, do either of you have like a crown jewel of your collection or is it too hard to choose? I'm, it is hard to choose. I mean, Dave, you, you go. Oh, um, I, I feel like I've been trying to like, if I get asked this, like pick something different just to say something different, but I, I do default a lot of the times. Um, uh, to the same item ultimately, which is, uh, and again, I know we've talked a lot about Star Wars, um, but uh, I have a uh, screen used from uh, A New Hope, the original Star Wars, uh, uh, Chewbacca mask, a full actual Chewbacca mask that was used in Star Wars and then oddly turned into Mala for the Star Wars holiday special, oh, no. which if you've ever seen mm-hmm. that horrible thing. So there, it's got some blonde hair added mm-hmm. to it. So it's been modified a little bit, but it was a it was a Chewbacca from Star Wars turned into Mala. Um, and uh, and uh, that is, uh, you know, if I think... If if all of a sudden I was you know filing for Chapter Eleven as <laughs> yeah, yeah. as th- as things left me mm-hmm. that would be the one I sort of hid in the closet from the creditors. So yeah, 
Ryan, yeah, I, I, I want you to give us ours, but real, I just want to follow. The, is there any sort of residue stink or like? That's you what have, I'm wondering because I yeah. saw, uh, you know, I've I've broken appendages and worn casts for two months, and then you get that thing off, and you're like, dear God! And I saw that Robin Williams, his forearms from Popeye. I guess they had a bunch of them, and I saw them for sale, and I thought. Man, but do those things stink? Like, I mean, it's an <laughs> well, iconic item, but... Robin Williams, incredibly talented oh. person, really brilliant, whatever, but that guy, I think, just sweated a lot. Yeah, so I, I think, think so. I think in general, you want to avoid Robin Williams <laughs> stuff, and you're collecting. There's there's going to be a stench. I mean, there mm-hmm. just is. Um, this one had the, uh, had the uh, I guess, the luck of basically being in a dark, damp... Um, cold okay. uh british attic mm-hmm. for like 25 30 years mm-hmm. to kind of uh yeah. defunkify it but by the way the that that the funk and not necessarily that you want something that smells but we talk a little bit about this sometimes like uh I've been trying to get a, a, a Thor hammer. Uh, I'd like. I had one in my collection. I had to let it go in a trade deal to pick up a piece that I. Yeah, it got very complicated. I had to I trade it. the Thor hammer <laughs> mm-hmm. to to a guy to get a piece to trade to a second guy to get a piece I wanted. So it was a triangular take, trade. Take and I take you replace you with Eugene Levy, and it's <laughs> it's a movie like it's done. We finished it. <laughs> um, and I've been trying to replace the Thor hammer, and the one I had, I, again, I, 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 you can't really screen match these things. There's a lot of movies, a lot of hammers, mm-hmm. but the one I had, the leather grip, definitely, like you could see, like sweaty handprints mm-hmm. on it. Like I don't know how else to describe that. And I keep seeing ones that are immaculate, that lead me to believe, yeah, maybe they were used or maybe they were made and never used or maybe they were made and given to this executive or I don't know. I don't, again, I don't know enough of the story, but I guess, I guess what I'm sort of saying is, is too clean, too immaculate. You know, you like, sometimes you want a little bit of the foam yellowing or you want the sweat stains in the the headband, do you know what I mean? Because that's how you kind of know it was used mm-hmm. in a world where how would you know if it was used? Yeah. So there's something to be said for the funk. That's yeah. Uh, yes. that's yeah. Ryan, well, so I, the the garage is on fire. You only have time yeah. to grab one thing. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. For me, I think uh, I do go back and forth on this because you know whatever. But uh, so tonight I'm going to answer. Uh, I have a I have an original uh, fedora from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, that's that's matched. So it's matched to the scene where he's in the uh, motorcycle, the sidecar with Sir Sean Connery uh, at at his side, and it was they. It was a pickup that they did in Northern California because they needed that little piece to connect, you know, that part of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was actually the the hat that the costumer uh, kept in the sh- in the costume shop as like I worked on Indiana Jones, and uh, was later you know rescued by uh, one of the you know one of the collector dealers that um, that deals in this stuff. So you know years many years later I was able to talk him out of it, but it's matched that scene so that each. Um, each of the fedoras, the the the, uh, the little ribbon on the side was was custom, sort of st- steamed and stamped. So they all have a different kind of crease pattern on it. And Harrison gets close enough in the camera, you can see that's exactly that one. You can kind of draw in all the lines on it. So it's incredible. And talking about you know funk and stains, it does not smell like Harrison Ford, which I imagine he smells like a you know like a cigar and a you know old mahogany chest with a delicious like. 35 to 40 year old uh, scotch whiskey yeah. that's what i imagine harrison ford smells like all the time doesn't smell like that but when you turn it upside down um you can actually see his uh his stage makeup is still in the sweatband uh on you know around wow. from you know when he was when he was wearing it and uh it's it's just it's it's glorious it's incredible and i i you know, I love indie. That was the the one indie film that I was old enough to see in the theater, and I just uh, it's it's glorious. It's it's one of my favorites. Back to the Christopher Guest movie. There's a scene. <laughs> garage is on fire. You're running out. The hat drops. You have to reach underneath the garage door to grab it just <laughs> before it shuts. Very good. 
and that's, yeah. it's, it I'm traps selling. me and I burn up in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone at the funeral, as your wife is just crying crazily, it's just like, what a fucking moron. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why she's upset because I've embarrassed her and the family. Yeah. <laughs> the, the portrait next to the casket is you with the hat. Yeah. Well, there's a there's yeah. a framed photo of you, but then there's a, a larger framed photo of the hat. Yeah, yeah. Two caskets. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, this has been really just amazing oh, yeah, and fascinating. And, and your delightful. your enthusiasm is infectious. And like I, I this podcast, just for anyone watching or listening to this, it's it's a it's so much fun to hear them talk about this enthusiastically and in such detail. And you guys have guests on that know sometimes even more than both of you. That's really awesome. And uh, and so like honestly, if you are remotely interested in film, television. Not even like the deeper world of it. Like it's a it's an enthusiastic podcast that's just so much fun to watch. And I really hope people check it out. It's on Spotify, iTunes, basically wherever you can find podcasts. Please go subscribe. It's called the Stuff Dreams Are Made of Podcast. You can also follow it on Twitter at Props Podcast. Um, David, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you guys so much. It was thank always you. a pleasure to meet another married couple that does podcasts. Well, so. what can we say? <laughs> you only need one mic. You know? That's yeah, the, <laughs> you share a mic. You only save on equipment. Uh, yeah, and if, if you'd ever love to come, I, I would love if you would just tell us more stories because yeah, I, I love hearing them. So We'd, thank you. Let's we do will, it. We will, we will come back. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. And we'll talk to you soon.